Ask anyone who's had a major water leak and they will tell you most of the damage could have been prevented if they had been able to stop the leak earlier. Groa, maker of the innovative German engineering showers and faucets, is helping busy homeowners like you prevent water damage and protect your home even when you're away. The new Groa SenseGuard is an intuitive, smart water control system that detects leaks, alerts you via your smartphone app, and automatically shuts off your water supply before more damage is done. Protect your home, vacation, or rental properties with Groa SenseGuard and quickly stop water damage before a drip becomes a flood. We're very excited to offer this week. Groa is going to give 35% off its SenseGuard at groa.us slash hive19. That's G-R-O-H-E dot U-S slash hive19. Once again, 35% off the Groa SenseGuard at groa.us slash hive19. Welcome to Inside the Hive. I am your host, Nick Bilton. So I've been a reporter for, I don't know, over a decade now. And the thing that I probably love the most about journalism is that you get to talk to sources that work inside places that you would not normally be allowed to, to see or hear about. And they tell you what goes on behind the curtains. Um, one of the things that I found so incredible about working at Vanity Fair is that my colleagues get to go to places that I only can dream of reading about. And one of the people who does this better than anyone is my guest today. It's Abigail Tracy, also known as Abby Tracy, who is a reporter for Vanity Fair's The Hive, who covers foreign policy and national security. Uh, she is sourced like you wouldn't even believe uh, with people um, on, at the White House, uh, the State Department, in government, in Congress, you name it. And she recently wrote a fantastic, fantastic piece on AOC, the famous congresswoman from New York, who I probably think is the most famous congressperson there is today. Uh, and she's going to come on the show and take us behind the scenes into what it was like to report that story, what AOC is really like, what drives her. Um, we're also going to talk a little bit about 2020 and how people like AOC, these youngest, con these young Congress people, are influencing uh, who will probably end up being the Democratic nominee. We're going to talk a little bit about what's going on with the Mueller report, and Abby has a really fascinating theory that we've actually already started to see the Mueller report. We just don't realize it yet. And of course, we'll get to Donald J. Trump, who we can't not talk about because he's Donald J. Trump. So without further ado, I'm excited to have Abby on the show. We're goofing around a little bit in the beginning here, but um, you know we're going to get right into it, and uh, it's a really fascinating conversation. Welcome back to Inside the Hive. I am so excited for my guest today because she spoke to someone who I would be, I mean, I feel like I'm talking to someone who met the Beatles right now. <laughs> Abby Tracy, welcome back to the show. I'm not really, I, I, I'm sure you're fine. I'm not going to ask you how you're doing. How on earth is AOC that you you recently met spent time with i'm so jealous mm -hmm. tell me about it <laughs> yeah I, I mean it was a really great experience obviously it's extremely exciting to meet somebody who has become you know sort of an overnight sensation at this stage in their career because i think you know aoc really does seem to be a politician who's obviously just getting started um so i'm sort of, i'm very excited that i met her kind of at this at this moment in time um but yeah it was great so uh I actually, I favorited one of her tweets once. Did you ask her if she saw that? 
I definitely, I definitely brought it up. It was the first okay. question. I was Great. like, "Hey, this guy Nick Bilton, he, you know, he he gave you a heart on one of your tweets. How do you feel about that?" Um, you know, so I know. And- look, I I, I know that <laughs> I, I know that there's there's some there's AOC obsessives. And I'm actually joking around, but like I know there's AOC obsessives and there's AOC haters. And like I will say before we get into this, like the thing that I like about AOC is that she is. You can't say she's not genuine. Like there's mm-hmm. this wasn't someone that like went through the ranks of being like I am going to become a politician and I'm going to milk it for all it's worth and this that and the other. Like she was a bartender who decided to run for Congress and won. Like it was in the same respects of as as you, there there are no other people really that in the last as far as I can remember in in political history that have pulled off what she pulled off and I think the the thing that just to kind of set this up that's I think is so exciting about her is that she actually it feels like she does represent the people right right am I right mm-hmm. in saying that yeah um, no I definitely I definitely think that's I, I think that's a huge part of it I think she's def, she's providing a voice to a community um and I you know sort of back to back to the day I spent with her uh, a chunk of it was at uh, the St. Pat's for All parade in Sunnyside Queens in New York mm-hmm. um and her Sunnyside is part of the New York 14 uh, congressional district and so that was her you know that was her district there were people there that were there um to see her the people you know that she represents and it, it was a really exciting thing to see particularly just this the level of enthusiasm is something that I have not seen you know you mean from from her district yeah from like from her? from the people that were there you know so many AOC signs AOC's green new deal uh AOC buttons AOC banners just so much support for her and just this sort of sense that you kind of, as you said, you know, we're walking down the street with a beetle. Just the kind of shock when people saw her in person was pretty, I don't know, it's pretty astounding. And it's something that I, I haven't seen and that I don't think a lot of politicians get, honestly. But, so what is it like for her? That's the the thing that I always wonder about. You know, you go from from walking down the street and people probably bumping into you and saying, get the fuck out of the way as New Yorkers do and not paying attention to you and so on. And to all of a sudden, Every breath, every tweet, every move, every outfit, everywhere you eat, every single solitary thing is being analyzed and dissected. How, how has that affected her? Yeah, so that was actually one of the major questions that I went into into the day with. And it's interesting because AOC and I are only a few months apart in age. So <laughs> sitting across from her and having a conversation with her, I'm just like, I'm, you know, I was thinking to myself, how are you coping with this? How are you handling it? And I, I brought that up to her. And really what she said was it was – incredibly overwhelming at first. She said those first couple of months, it felt like she was being torn, you know, apart, like pulled apart by her limbs. And it was just this crush of publicity, right? She said, you know, the way that she put it was the night of the primary, you know, a very small group of people or individuals that were, you know, specific to the community and the district that she was running in, um, they knew who she was. But beyond that, nobody knew. And she said that in a seven-hour span, uh, it was just snap of the fingers, suddenly she was being driven to Morning Joe and, you know, sort of this sensation overnight. And I, you know, just talking to her, you could really get a sense that it was overwhelming and at first it was crippling and at times can still 
be crippling. Um, I think one of the most interesting things that you told me was sort of this idea that, you know, she does have those days, like any person does, where she would just like to hide in a closet and not see the world and, you know, hope that no one bothers her. But it's interesting to be in the position that she's in because she can't really do that. And I think, you know, it's still early. She's been in Congress for two months, which seems ridiculous. It feels like, you know, she's been, yeah, it feels like she's, she's been, been in there, there way as long longer. As Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> right. So I, yeah. I think you kind of, kind of forget about that. And I think it's still, to me, it seems like something that she was still, you know, working through and, and acclimating to and getting used to. Um, but I think one of the things that she really put out there was this idea that if she doesn't use her voice right now, that others will fill the void. And I think that was my big takeaway. It, it, it just seemed like such an overwhelming personal experience for her, but sort of recognizing the stakes as she sees them at this, you know, at this time. Did you get the sense that, um, you know, I, 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 one of the things I find so fascinating about people, I've new Congress people I've spoken to uh, once they've won is, is they're they're always kind of overwhelmed by the idea that um, that they well first of all they they're oh my god I won I'm a I'm a congressperson now but but just how um, poorly the government is run and how mm-hmm. ineffective it is in so many senses did you get the sense that uh, she had experienced that so far herself too Yeah I mean I I think as with AOC and as with other members of the freshman class you know there have been a number of them who have kind of captured the spotlight for sort of uh, breaking with the status quo. And I think that comes from that sense, right? Like this notion that things don't have to be the same as they've always been. And I think, you know, she has been kind of a ringleader in pushing back against the status quo at times. And I think it's it's certainly um, an interesting thing to watch. And I think, you know, she's she's been really making changes. And and one of the things that she also talked to me about is this notion of, you know, being able to learn on the job and being able to make mistakes um, as long as you're trying to do your best. And I thought that was a really interesting and refreshing thing to hear from somebody in Congress. This this idea, in her words, I, I, I think, you know, um, I'm kind of uh, ad-libbing a bit, but, you know, she basically said that this idea that you don't have to go into Congress to be a perfect politician, to be a good representative of your, you know, whether it's your district, whether it's your state, um, whether you're in local politics. It was just a really interesting kind of refreshing take on Congress, this idea that you don't have to be perfect and that you don't have to know all the rules overnight and that people should be able to learn on the job because the people who might have to learn on the job might be better at representing the communities that they come from. So when you look at her influence um, in Congress right now, I mean, I, I feel like, you know, while Nancy Pelosi, of course, is the most influential person, it's also, it's almost like she's the like minority speaker, right? It's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> she is as of equal importance, even though she can't actually uh, get things through in the same way Pelosi can. But do you think that this is, the that she will have a, a lasting impact for the next X like couple of years, or is this kind of a moment in time where we're like, oh great, look at the 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 new person who's got a new idea, and um, and that there'll be some sort of screw up, and then it'll be she'll just be one of 
um, of a few hundred, uh, or do you think that she'll actually be able to uh, to keep this momentum and use it to try to push forward agendas that uh, her district wants? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, it's a good question. I think one of the keys to AOC's success and sort of her visibility is the platform that she has, right? Um, you know, she has some 3 million followers on Twitter and, you know, so many others across Facebook, Instagram. And I think one of the things and, some, you know, perhaps the most important thing to really focus on is that, you know, the fact that she has this massive platform. And that platform goes well beyond, you know, the confines of her district. And I think that is what's feeding her power, too. I think, you know, she has this sort of megaphone for her voice that other members of Congress could only dream of. Um, That said, I do think it's important, you know, we see so much written about AOC. We see her on Twitter. We see different interviews that she does or different media appearances. But I think one of the keys to also keep in mind is that when you watch AOC in hearings, there have been a number where she's really performed quite well. Um, Obviously, the Cohen hearing was sort of the most high profile profile of those. I think one thing that also really comes across, though, when you're watching her in those more uh, formal congressional settings is a respect for the institution and a respect for the rules and sort of these processes that have been in place. You know, how very un-Trump-like (laughs) <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, I, I think there, there's this, what, you know, so many people talk about that, right? Like this idea that AOC is the left's Donald Trump in terms of, you know, being good at Twitter or sort of having this following or kind of, you know, being to push ideas into the mainstream. And I think that is a key point of differentiation between the two, right? This different respect for the institutions. I think, you know, some people will point to the infighting or things of that nature, but that's different than to not respect rules or not respect, um, you know, institutional norms. And I think that is something that she very much does that we've certainly seen Donald Trump not do for the past two years. Completely. So do you think, right, so right now we're, I mean, it's it's exhausting already uh, talking about 2020, <laughs> but oh. we're, we're, we've been talking about, I feel like we've been talking about 2020 since 2016. Um yeah, seriously. But <laughs> yeah, but there's a. We are talking about it because we um, we're, we're worried. You know, we're worried about if Trump is going to win again, and we're worried about um, the the repercussions if another Republican does win, and um, not only if it's Trump or if, if if it's someone else that ends up running against whatever could happen. But mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, there's there's a huge thing at stake in the Supreme Court. There's there's so much at stake. And, um, and there's a thing going on in the Democratic Party right now, and partially as a result of someone like AOC winning, where there's, it's almost like the Democratic Party has, you know, a hundred flavors of democracy in mind, Mm -hmm. everything from the far, far left to things that are right of center to a a group of people that are centrist in the middle and and so on. And, and there's, uh, I'm curious to hear what you think about if the, the far left push from the AOCs of the world is, are you worried about that? Is that going to be something that you are, that will have a, a really negative impact on the election and that could hurt the Democrats? Like, how do you think this plays out as far as this, uh, this far left viewpoint um, and how powerful it's going to be? Well, I think one of the things to recognize, first off, is that this isn't 
this dynamic isn't necessarily new to the Democratic Party, right? There have always been the moderate sort of, you know, the blue dog Democrats, and there have always been more liberal people in in a progressive wing. I think one of the things right now is back to sort of this idea of the platform is you have a lot of these um, – these very outspoken freshmen, AOC sort of chief among them, who are pushing these much more progressive agendas and are also younger and they have a different, you know, uh, they have different sorts of megaphones, I guess, where these ideas seem louder, but they've always really existed within the Democratic Party. But I think moving forward, one of the other things to kind of keep in mind, too, is the way in which everybody's trying to frame AOC, right? Because there's there's What the do you framing. mean by frame? Like, I, I think there is something to be said about how the right is trying to turn her into a foil um, for Donald Trump, right? Kind of to position her as the next Nancy Pelosi or Hillary Clinton, sort of a boogeyman of the left um, to try to help them on the right. And I think one of the things is they've really tried to, you know, paint, paint, AOC as sort of like a communist moron and representative and that, you know, through that narrative that she represents all Democrats. And that's certainly a strategy. And that's certainly the strategy that they're going in uh, in with uh, into 2020 with. And I think one of the important things to kind of keep in mind is that's going on. But, you know, based on my conversations with AOC and staffers who represent other um, individuals who are, you know, sort of in this very progressive wing, um, a lot of freshmen, is this idea that they're under no illusion that, you know, their district is different than, a, you know, a Democrat, a freshman Democrat that won a purple district or won a district that Trump won in 2016. I think there is a recognition among them that they do have different demographics in their districts. They do have to sort of fight for their causes. But I think one of the thing, one of the things to sort of keep in mind going forward is this sense that they have to Democrats in general have to be unified against uh, against the Trump agenda. Um, but within that, they'll certainly they'll certainly be fractures. Um, but I you know, I do think Nancy Pelosi has <laughs> a big task ahead of her in terms of, you know, sort of making sure that those fractures don't create a freedom freedom caucus for the Democrats. When it comes to 2020, um, you know, the you you have this thing, of course, we start in Iowa and mm-hmm. it goes all around the country and, and so on. Uh, AOC is six years away from even being eligible to run and who knows where the world will be in six years, if, even if it'll be here. I mean, climate change, we <laughs> right. could, we who could knows? Be, this, this could be our last conversation ever. Maybe somebody messed uh, up a decimal point somewhere in that 12-year calculation for all of us. Yeah. Exactly. And the, and the, this is it. It was nice knowing you, Abby. Thank you so <laughs> yeah, much. Yeah, thanks for a having me on show. the pod. Goodbye. Great times. Uh, um, but at the same time, um, as someone who is so influential, and, and, and this is not just about AOC, but this is about a lot of these freshman mm-hmm. uh, congresspeople who will not be running. Do you ha- do you think that they are going to have an impact um, on the who ends up being the Democratic nominee in a way that we've never seen freshman Congress people have before? Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of think we already have, right? So you have, way? I mean, you look at the Green New Deal and you already have declared 2020 candidates lining up saying that they support it, despite the fact that right now it, you know, it's a, it's an ambitious policy idea and it certainly has goals, but it's, you know, it doesn't, it's not nailed down to the details yet, right? It's still sort of um, a nebulous idea, 
at this stage, but you have individuals who are lining up behind it. And you also see other things, whether it's, you know, a 70 percent marginal tax rate for the richest Americans, which is something that AOC floated in a in an interview. And then you see that being a question, you know, do you support this? That being a question posed to this democratic field. So I think already, you know, a lot of the issues that AOC and others are amplifying have become talking points in 2020. And, you know, it's really just getting started. So I think it will be interesting to sort of see what happens. And and I think, you know, one of the one of the interesting things that I like to think about, too, is, you know, this notion that in 2016, AOC volunteered for Bernie Sanders campaign. But in 2020, I think it's hard to imagine a world in which her endorsement doesn't matter a, a ton. You know, I think it will be a critical yeah. endorsement. And I think that's kind of an interesting thing to think about. Like, certainly who she throws her way behind um, will matter in a lot of ways, I think. So I, I do believe that they're already shaping the conversation that we're seeing about 2020. Um, but I also think, you know, how exactly they'll be shaping it um, sort of down the line will is yet to be seen a bit. Do you think that um, moving on a little bit from a bit staying on this topic, on the 2020 topic, do you worry, you know, that we're going to have this is a two-part question. So the mm-hmm. per- first part is, A, do you worry that we're going to have a, a situation where there's so many people um, up on stage uh, vying for this um, ability to take on Trump that we will um, kind of destroy you, – you'll see the Democrats kind of destroy themselves a little bit in the fight to be the, the winner. Um, you know, I mean, it, there are going to be – I can't imagine that they're going to all be on the same page of of not being too aggressive with each other. Um, You're Mm -hmm. also going to have at the same time, the same thing we had with Bernie versus Hillary, where the the DNC is going to have to pick someone and get behind them in some respects, and which of course will drive the party uh, and divide it even more. Um, You've got Mm -hmm. the left versus the centrist versus the rights in the party that are going to divide it. Do, Do you think that we are, this is the first part of the question, then I'll wait for that <laughs> second part. But do you think that the, the, the Democrats are, are kind of screwing themselves by not controlling how many people are running and, and who and when and so on uh, at this point in the game? So I think, you know, I, I do obviously recognize the fact that with such a bloated field and so many individuals – there is a concern that we could end up with something, you know, that happened to uh, the Republicans in 2016, right, where it was such a fragmented field and you had different, you know, different votes sort of split across this massive group um, that really kind of led to Trump winning the primary. Um, Certainly, I, I think that's a concern. But I also do think that there is a appetite, absolutely, among Democratic voters and, you know, voters in general to have options. I think, you know, going into 2016, obviously Bernie Sanders was in the mix and he certainly did, um, you know, a lot better than expectations would, than expectations going into it. Um, People certainly underestimated uh, how well he would actually do in the primary against Hillary Clinton. But I think going into it, you know, Hillary Clinton was the the assumed candidate uh, for the Democrats. And I think right now there is, there does appear to be an appetite for a more, um, you know, a larger field and have a couple more options. But you do raise a really critical um, 
aspect of all of this, and it's sort of you know how much they can prevent uh, sort of hamstringing uh, the eventual the eventual nominee if there's like you know in these debates where all these folks are on stage or you know these different policy ideas. I think it is a very fine line um, to walk there between you know hurting the Democrats by going you know, taking too many shots or taking hits at some of the other Democratic candidates. So it'll be really interesting to kind of see how how the field shakes out like that. But I, I will argue that I think 2016, when we saw the Republicans, I, I do think Trump in the race sort of brought down, uh, lack of a better way to put it, the maturity level um, in terms of what that looked like and sort of how things shook out with the Republican field in 2016. And I just hope that, you know, Democrats in 2020 don't suffer a similar fate. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. So weekends in our house are totally chaotic. We have two little toddlers. But the minute they go down for their nap, we get an hour to ourselves. And the first thing we do is we flop on the couch and we read The New Yorker. It is some of the best writers in the world today. The New Yorker holds people in power accountable through rigorous reporting, compelling storytelling, both online and in print. The New Yorker covers a full range of topics from politics, news, international affairs, Climate change, environment, pop culture, arts, fiction, food, humor, my personal favorite, the cartoons, of course. Uh, it's beautiful subjects, things you wouldn't even think to read about, like heirloom beans and stink bugs and paper jams and fault lines. Um, you know, I go to The New Yorker several times a day to see what they're saying about the, the main news of the day and these longer form pieces. I love reading Jelena Cobb on journalism and race and so on. Helen Rosner, a James Beard award-winning food writer. Um, just the breadth is just everywhere. I was just today reading about Beto O'Rourke and the chances of him actually becoming president uh, in a fantastic article on The New Yorker. Uh, the New Yorker is going to offer listeners of Inside the Hive a very, very special treat this week. 12 weeks of The New Yorker for just $6.00. Plus, get this, you get a New Yorker tote bag. I have a New Yorker tote bag, and I take it with me everywhere. I love my New Yorker tote bag. You will, too. You get home delivery of the print edition each week, unlimited access to thenewyorker.com with 10 to 15 exclusive site-only stories that are added every single day, access to the New Yorker's apps, online archives, crossword puzzles, you name it. To get this special deal, to get the tote bag and your 12 issues of The New Yorker for just $6, go to newyorker.com slash hive. Uh, that's, that's it, newyorker.com slash hive. You're going to save 50% when you type in newyorker.com slash hive and enter the code hive. So you, you spend a lot of time talking to a lot of people currently in the White House and around the White House and that work, in, work for the Trump administration in one form or another. Is there a feeling that um, there's worry about the, the Democrats and what they might be capable of? Or is there a feeling that, um, that Trump is, you know, smart enough to take anyone on or not smart enough. I mean, smart's a, the wrong word for him. I think it's, <laughs> it is a, I, I like, I don't know even what the word is, but is Trumpian enough to take anyone on and, and, and be able to, to beat them in the ring. So I think there's certainly a concern. I mean, you look at Donald Trump and you look at his approval ratings and he has a very hard ceiling right in the low 40s, right? And some of this stuff, you know, people make a big deal out of Trump's base and the mega base and, you know, that whether I think it's like 30, 35 percent of the population that will support him no matter what, kind of those individuals that, you know, if he shot somebody uh, – 
on Fifth Avenue, uh, they wouldn't care. That type of, you know, that diehard Trump fan. But the thing is, is like you can't win an election with just Trump, with just the Trump base. So I think, you know, when you're looking at it and you're looking at Trump's chances of victory, they do hinge upon, you know, who the Democratic nominee is and sort of what tone they're striking and how well, you know, they are able to capture some of those voters, you know, whether they're Obama voters that then voted Trump in 2016, whether they're them, whether they're the, you know, the suburban women that stayed home, whether they're independents who have left the Republican Party over the last two years. You know, the question really as to how well Trump does, I think, depends on who the Democrats put forward at the end of, you know, what will certainly be kind of a bloody bloody primary. And do you think do you think that that, you know, one of the questions that I keep asking myself and I'm unable to answer to myself uh, is that you we have a world where we have massive inequality in a way that probably hasn't been around in centuries you have and it's growing worse and worse um, as technology continues to take jobs and make the rich richer and the poor poorer you have mm-hmm. the opioid crisis which has not been even remotely changed under Trump. You, uh, same number of people that die every year from right. gun deaths and car deaths and this, that, and the other. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and do you think that, that what, and when I think about those things and I think about especially the inequality, it would seem to me that the response from Americans that can't afford to pay their, their, their car bills and, and, and buy a new TV and feed their family is, oh, I'm going to go towards the left where they're talking about taxing the the uber rich uh like starbucks ceos and so on and not taxing the poor as much do you think that there's a world where where people actually want someone who's more lefty than they do want someone that's more centrist or is it that americans care more about abortion um than they do about being able to feed their own family and therefore they're gonna kind of go more towards central or right Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think sort of at the at the base of your question, one of the critical things will be what happens to the economy by the time the election rolls around. Right. I I remember actually ahead of the 2016 election, um, I spoke with. Uh, Robert Reich, who, you know, former former Secretary of Labor, kind of about the election and sort of what his take on 2016 was. And, you know, what he told me at the time was um, that the economic expansion that we saw under President Obama, while slow, uh, was also a little bit long in the tooth by the time 2016 was rolling around. So just this notion that, you know, economic expansions and recessions are incredibly, um, you know, they're historical, there are trends to them, um, they're cyclical, and sort of this notion that even going into 2016, the economic expansion was a little bit long in the tooth, and this notion um, that he put forward was that whoever was elected in 2016 would only serve one term because he predicted he predicted or expected that during the the four years between 2016 and 2020 that there would be a a pretty major economic downturn um and then you you look back at the presidents who that happened to right you have george hw bush and you have jimmy carter um so they were both elected for one term and a lot of what we saw sort of contributing to the fact that they only served one term was the fact that the economic um sort of the economy soured on their watch so i think one of the critical things when we're talking about like you know that inequality and those concerns i think 
the big driver of kind of if people move to the left and really move away from Trump and his policies could depend on whether we do see that economic downturn do you, downturn do you, that's th- kind of expected. Do you think it's going to happen still? Do Or do, do, do people you speak to think it's going to happen still? Or is there a way that Trump kind of gets to kick the ball down the field until after 2020? Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the critical things that we've even seen just recently is the latest uh, jobs report where 20,000 were added, and that was well below the estimate, I think, of, you know, 200,000. And I think when you're looking at something like that, obviously Donald Trump, you know, throughout his presidency has has sort of pointed to the stock market and, you know, every stock market high claims victory and all these things. But, you know, I think there is still a pretty big concern around um, some of the other economic indicators that people are seeing and sort of this concern that, you know, there could be something around the corner, um, which would be, you know, super unfortunate for so many Americans, but I think also could really hurt Trump in, in 2020, particularly because he ran, you know, on those platforms to help the working class, to bring back jobs, to do those things. So I think if we see that and we see things get demonstrably worse on his watch, then then certainly that, that could really hurt him. So w- when you think about the... Like, I remember Bill Clinton once said, people don't go to the polls for all the reasons they're voting for a candidate. They go for one reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's funny because I used to work at the New York Times and the, 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 the folks at the top of the masthead would always say, you know, people don't pick up the newspaper because they want to read the news. They pick it up if it's not raining. You know, like mm-hmm. newspaper sales, of course, <laughs> drop dramatically when it's right. raining. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it, there are things that you don't think about that are factors in the decisions that people make. And and I and I'm curious if you have an, any understanding or awareness from the people you've spoken to about is what is the issue that is going to get people in the middle to not vote for Trump? I mean, you've got you've got that 30, 40 percent that. As you said, he could, we've we've all said this a million times. Like they're going to vote for him no matter what he does, whether that wall mm-hmm. is built, whether that wall is not built, whether the economy is up or down, whether it, they just love him because he's him and that's it. But it's the people, it's that hundred thousand to few a few million in the middle that are going to decide this, as they always do. Um, and what is it? The what do you think it is? Is the issue that is going? Is it the economy for them? Is it the is it abortion? Is it is it the wall? Like, what is the issue mm-hmm. that is core to those people in the center that the Democrats should really be focusing on? Well, I think I think first off, it, you know, it's less about you know getting people not. Uh, I think it's less about getting people not to vote for Trump than to get people who might not vote. Um, out to the polls. And I think- To vote you know, for the Democrat. Yeah, to vote for the Democrat, to really push the turno- turnout and do sort of what we saw during the 2018 midterms, right? Where you had crazy turnout um, and that really drove some of these victories back to AOC. That was a huge part of it. You know, people who had never voted before came out and voted for her. And I think when you're looking at 2020, one of the keys, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to really say what the the one critical issue is, because I do think that is dependent upon various factors. You know, you might have a millennial who's voting based on, you know, a climate change platform, and you might have an older adult based on, you know, whether or not 
an individual candidate is promising to protect, you know, Medicare or Medicaid or something along those lines, right? But I think one of the critical things, and again, back to the 2018 midterms, this was a big lesson that was learned. And I think it was this notion that you can't necessarily just win running against Trump. Certainly in some districts that might be something, but the districts where it really matters, where you need to get those voters who haven't voted previously or didn't vote in 2016 and stayed home because they didn't vote for Clinton, they didn't vote for Trump or or whatever it may be. Um, I, I think one of the things that has to happen in 2020 is that the candidate has to have real policies and real policies that get people out to vote. It can't just be, you know, Donald Trump, blah, blah, blah. Because I, I think when you you know, back to this idea of his base. There are people who either really like Trump or don't like Trump. I, I find it, I find that there are very few people in the middle um, who are kind of like, oh, he's all right. You know what I mean? Like, I just don't feel as though there are that many people that fall under that umbrella. Um, so when we're looking at 2020, I think the key is that whatever candidate the Democrats put forward is somebody who has very clear policy ideas that people are excited about and a candidate that people are excited about because it's excitement that brings people to the polls, not, you know, not necessarily, okay, we have to beat Trump. I think it has to be something a little bit more multifaceted and uh, kind of bigger than that, honestly. Do you, um, uh, you you've written recently about the uh, the Kim Jong-un <laughs> disaster uh, mm-hmm. and, um, and what happened there. Uh, uh, the folks that you speak to inside government, uh, do they think that... Um, are they still pro-Trump or are they still like, okay, we just got to make it through the next 18 months? Um, do they think he's a fool still? Do they, I mean, what's, what are they saying? So I think one of the interesting things when we're looking at the, at the North Korea issue is that, you know, anything, you, where we are today is certainly better than like rain, fire and fury on North Korea, sort of, you know, that really intense rhetoric that was coming from both sides. I think people very much recognize that. But I think one of the big issues when we're looking at North Korea is this idea that, you know, I do believe that there is a, that Trump and Kim Jong-un have a relationship, right? Like, I do think that, you know, crazily enough, you have two sort of nuts leaders who can kind of have a mind meld or meet or sort of have a rapport. And that is something. Like, as much as, like, it seemed as though what Trump was doing was absolutely crazy, um, there is a little bit something there. But I think one of the major problems, and this is what so many people predicted who I spoke with, whether they were different experts or analysts, ahead of the second summit between Trump and Kim, was this notion that, okay, great, like, we have another opportunity, you know, there aren't missiles being fired off. It would be great as long as people did the legwork and sort of the working level thing so that people arrived at that negotiation table with the same set of ideas as to, you know, what an agreement could look like. And I think that was the real problem when we looked at the second summit, right? That that work wasn't done. That, you know, they weren't on the same page going into it. It was, again, just sort of a a photo op and it fell apart because at the working level, things weren't set up where, you know, they had reached agreements or they were on the same page or they were really coming to the table, you know, at a point where it made sense to come to the table. And I think that's the problem. And I think that's been an ongoing problem with the Trump administration just in general. You look at the vacancies at the NSC, you look at the vacancies at the State Department, and 
when you're looking at a high-profile event such as these summits, that's where the problem of people who really smart, talented, um, experienced people don't want to come work for Donald Trump, that's where you get into trouble. Or even Donald Trump not wanting to have people on his staff who he's sus suspicious of, he thinks they're Obama holdovers, whatever it may be. And I think that is really the problem is, okay, we had an opportunity, but the problem is, is Donald Trump didn't have the staff or, you know, a willingness to enable his staff to really sort of hash things out and and reach a point where a negotiation or a summit would have been worthwhile, if that makes sense. It makes total sense. I mean, I think yeah. it's just, uh, it's kind of what I expected. It's just uh, hearing it is always comical and sad and, and, yeah. uh, and, and, um, you know, and whatnot. Um, all right. So, um, let's, uh, let's wrap up here in the next, uh, next few minutes with, um, with the thing that I have been told and we've all read <laughs> for weeks and weeks and weeks and months and months and months that it's coming in two weeks, the Mueller report. Where is it? Is it going to get here before <laughs> the election cycle? Like what is going on? Well, um, so it's a good question. I think, you know, this week we've obviously seen some big stuff. Earlier today, um, uh, the time of the, you know, taping of this podcast is Wednesday. So earlier this morning you saw uh, Mueller's team come out and say that, you know, they're pretty much in the same spot with Mike Flynn. They're ready to sentence him. His cooperation is is basically over. Reminder that earlier um, they went to Mike Flynn's sentencing and basically the judge sent Mike Flynn back and said, hey, you should keep cooperating with the government, basically. Um, and then we also had Manafort getting sentenced. So those are like two areas that you're you're sort of seeing wind down. Um, also coming up, what, what will be interesting is the DOJ budget request um, is coming up on the docket. So what you might see in there is like, okay, is the Mueller investigation going to continue to be funded, which I think would be a really interesting thing. In terms of the report itself, you know, it's hard to say. People are really saying, you know, it could be it could be mid-March, which is right now. <laughs> so um, who knows? Or it could be over the next month. Um, but I, I do think one of the one of the things that's really interesting to me, and this is a point that that I've made, is I don't know, you know, there are still a ton of question marks as to what the Mueller report will be, what the public will see, blah, 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 right? Um, but I am of the mind that I do think that the Mueller report has, you know, been being written in front of us through these speaking indictments. And I think if you go back over the public body of Robert Mueller's work and you really read through these things, and, and when I say speaking indictment, basically what that means is that when he's writing out these indictments, he's including more information than he needs to to prove a charge, which actually in some cases could raise the barrier of proof for him. So essentially make his job harder in court by including some of these extraneous details. But I think when you take a step back and you look at all of these speaking indictments and sort of this broader body of Robert Mueller's work that's already public, like you do sort of see the story that he's been writing and sort of, you know, he has laid out like how Russia interfered in our election. And you see these interactions that are in in the pages between different Trump officials or Trump campaign officials rather and Russians and things like that. And, you know, in some of those instances, they don't necessarily amount to indictments themselves or charges, but they're part of this story. And I think Robert Mueller, you know, has been writing this story in public. So, you know, what the report is technically under the special counsel statutes is 
essentially a summary that he has to give to to the new attorney general, William Barr, which basically says his reasoning for why he did indict certain people and why he didn't indict others. So it's really just like an explanation as to the major actions that he took. Um, the special counsel regulations don't go much further into detail on that. One but interesting- do they... Oh, sorry. Well, no, no, no. Was... Yeah, well, was... <clears throat> what, did, did, did they... So... so you're saying that we are, we're already seeing part of the special counsel's uh, uh, report coming out in drips? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, also I think it is an interesting strategy for Mueller too, right, to to kind of write his report in um, in these indictments or, you know, these different charging documents that are sitting in court dockets Um across the country or different, you know, different districts. And I think it's kind of um, interesting, uh, sort of this notion that he has been creating a record of his investigation, I think particularly in light of the fact that Donald Trump is president and Donald Trump has been antagonistic toward the special counsel investigation and DOJ, FBI, you know, since he took office and since before he took office, obviously the special counsel investigation wasn't, you know, in wasn't in existence at that time. But, you know, just in general sort of toward this idea of DOJ, FBI, deep state, kind of, you know, that sort of conspiracy-minded stuff that he's he's thrown out there. Um, I do think one interesting thing, though, um, to keep an eye on is that the special counsel regulations do include um, what's basically called like a sunshine provision, which says that at any point um, during the investigation when a – you know, either Rod Rosenstein or Matthew Whitaker or William Barr um, refused a request of Mueller's that that goes to Congress. So Congress under the statute has to be informed if there was a moment where, for instance, Bill Barr um, hypothetically said, oh, hey, like, no, I don't want you to indict this person or, hey, no, like, you're not going to get funding for X, Y, Z. So Congress will get some of that. So that's and then the House gets it and and that comes out. Right. So that would be something where it's like that goes to Congress because right now under the statute, the only requirement under the current statute. So this keep in mind, this is different than what Ken Starr was operating under uh, during the Clinton administration, obviously, since he wrote, you know, his big like expose type thing. Um, But I, I think one of the critical points and this is why you're seeing such you know, such a concern over whether or not people will see the Mueller report is that under the current statute, Robert Mueller is only required to give it to the to Bill Barr. So give it to the AG. Um, and one of the things is, is that that's what you've been seeing from Democrats in the House, you know, sort of this appetite to get a copy of it as well, because under the statutes, they're not required to. Once it goes to Bill Barr, it's really in Bill Barr's control as to where where things go after that. Is there a world where they give it to Bill Barr and Bill Barr says, doesn't do anything with it and that gets leaked to the to Congress or the media or something like that? I mean, I, I certainly kind of have a hard time believing that the Mueller report, whatever shape it may take... Um, isn't eventually seen by the public, you know, and you've also had different moves by Congress, you know, different votes that they're trying to take to sort of force it um, to be given to Congress, uh, different things like that. Also, you know, there is this other this other notion of of the roadmap um, that we saw during Watergate where uh, the special prosecutor Jaworski, he essentially turned over um, all sort of through a kind of 
curious process, he turned over all the grand jury testimony and information to Congress. Um, and then mm. that was used sort of in their case of impeachment against Nixon. Um, so so what you saw there is like, that's interesting, right? So this idea that you have all these, you know, hundreds of thousands of pages probably of grand jury testimony from whether it would be, you know, uh, who pick pick your pick your Trump world figure, you know, who's testified before the grand jury and all that testimony could eventually be turned over to Congress, like through this method method that we saw under Jaworski. So I think um, during Watergate. So I think one of the things is it's there are a lot of different ways in which Congress might be able to get it. You know, also an interesting aspect of all of this is Republicans, you know, I'm not sure if you remember these sort of um, very contested battles earlier over um, different uh, like FISA warrants and things of that nature. So Republicans really sort of pushed the limit in terms of what they were requesting from DOJ in terms of documents related to the special counsel and Russia investigations um, and the Clinton investigation as well into her email server. Um, And in doing so, they actually kind of set uh, precedents that might bite them, you know, bite them later as a result. So sort of this idea that in their desire to sort of get all these, you know, all these DOJ documents that they thought would, you know, cast um, the DOJ in a poor light or like expose malfeasance in terms of the handling of the the Clinton or the Trump-Russia investigations, they really kind of set a precedent that now Democrats might be able to use against them in terms of getting documents related to the Mueller report um, or to the Mueller investigation more broadly. Do you think that um, that so is is your theory that there will be that the report will come out and will be like oh we've already seen the report and here's the thing that just kind of wraps up with a bow or is there a world where the report comes out and because I've seen these instances where they kind of mention people as like you know witnesses and and mm-hmm. you know and so on uh, CW one and this that and the other. Uh, and people are th- believing that one of them is actually the president. Do you? Is there a world where this comes out and we're like, oh, that's pretty anticlimactic. We already knew all that. Or is there another world where it comes out and it's like, and it was Donald Trump the entire time. And we're like, <laughs> holy shit, they're going to arrest him. Like, is is there either of those scenarios or is it more, what do you think? Well, I, I certainly think that, you know, a lot – one of the key things that, to keep in mind is every single time Robert Mueller has brought an indictment, there was stuff in it that people didn't know about, right? So sort of this idea that, you know, what's in the public is really at the tip of the iceberg and Mueller knows more than anybody else and it's sort of below below the surface there. So I think that's something to keep in mind, just this idea that he's surprised everybody with every single indictment that he's dropped, including the Roger Stone one, despite the fact that, you know, there was so much out about Roger Stone and, you know, Randy Critico and Jerome Corsi and some of those like other individuals kind of around him. Um, But when we're taking a look as to what we might find out, I I do believe that this is going to get closer to the president. Um, But I think one of the really important points to make is that, you know, this question of did – did the Trump campaign collude is more of a political one um, than a legal one to some extent. Like collusion isn't – there's no specific crime of collusion. Obviously, there are other crimes that could fall under, you know, 
count as collusion, whether it's like different conspiracy, conspiracy against the United States, stuff like that. You know, what we have seen in some of the indictments Robert Mueller has brought specifically against um, the Russian troll farm um, and grew kind of those sort of crimes that are laid out there. But, you know, collusion is also a political question. So I do think that there is also a world in which there's all this information out there and there are all these activities that were taken by different members of um, the Trump campaign or um, figures in Trump world that may not, you know, rise to the level of, uh, you know, criminal conduct or something that they would be indicted for by Robert Mueller, but could be a piece of a case of impeachment against the president um, that could rise to something greater. And obviously, you know, the president's actions certainly could be among those. So I think it's kind of an, you do have to sort of think about the idea that there is, um, there's just a difference between, you know, criminal charges and um, what could be in impeachment charges against the president. Do you think that, um, so this week we saw um, Manafort got another 43 months, so he's now got seven and a half years in federal prison. Uh, there's a theory that Trump will pardon him, and there's also the Southern District of New York, which is now going to charge him. Um, mm-hmm. If these if indictments start to kind of, you know, there's got to be a strategy, of course, from Trump to when he decides to pardon these people, which I'm sure he will do. Um, does it? Does he wait and do it all at once, or does he? Does he just pardon Manafort now and say, "Screw you, Mueller. There's nothing you can do that that's going to mess with me." Or, or how do you think that happens? Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the important things that happens around the pardon question is how Republicans uh, treat it. Right? You know, obviously Trump himself has floated this idea. And, you know, he's like, it's not off the table. We know that, um, you know, Trump's lawyers have been in touch with Manafort's lawyers. They were in touch with Flynn's lawyers as well. Um, So I do think that it is an open question. But what was interesting today was to already see, you know, some Republicans saying things like, oh, it would be really, you know, political suicide if he did this. You know, it's a bad idea, like warning the president against it. And I think, that will actually matter. You know, obviously, we've seen, you know, over the last two years, there have not been profiles encouraged among the Republican Party um, by any means in terms of, you know, standing up to the president. But I do think at times their messaging and the ways that they that they talk to him, whether it's in person or through the media, particularly the latter, um, I do think sometimes that can move the needle a bit. And I think, you know, after the Manafort sentence, if people do think that, you know, he might pardon them, I think there will be some strong signaling coming from his own party that that would be, you know, a politically really bad idea. Um, Because again, keep in mind that, and this is a point that Trump's lawyers and Trump continue to make, that Manafort's charges were not related to um, the, you know, his work on the Trump campaign. Obviously, his cooperation agreement, you know, uh, what we've seen in some court filings is that what he's been helping Robert Mueller with and cooperating with Robert Mueller on, some of that stuff is definitely related to the Trump campaign and this question of Russian interference in the 2016 election. But his other, like the charges that he's for are very well, that he, you know, that he was indicted on and that he was charged with, they're very serious crimes and they're also like very well documented very well documented crimes in terms of, you know, the fraud he committed and different things like that. So it it just, it isn't a political winch, witch hunt, the charges that were brought against Paul Manafort. And you saw that actually today in court, um, Judge Amy Berman Jackson laughed at him, you know, because his attorneys kept bringing up this point that 
you know, the only reason Paul Manafort's being charged on these crimes is because of the special counsel investigation. And she really, like, laughed at them in court and said, that's no excuse. Like, you still committed these crimes and you pleaded yeah. guilty to these crimes. So so I think it, it's important to take a step back and, like, recognize that, that he is a convicted criminal. And the charges aren't, you know, they're not some witch hunt type thing. Like, these are very serious charges and they're well-documented charges and he's also pled guilty to a number of them. All right. Very last question. And then we'll let you get back to your writing and working and whatnot is do we're going to bring it back to the beginning here. Do you think that AOC will run for president in eight years or something like that? Man, this is a good question. Um, Honestly, did you ask her or did you like, so she, so I, I didn't specifically bring this up, but, but I do find it very, very difficult to envision a world in which she just like hangs out in the New York 14 congressional district for 20 years like her, um, you know, like we saw from Joe Crowley, the the congressman that she beat in the primary, you know, Crowley like rose his way up through the Democratic leadership ranks and all that. I, my sense, and this was, this was in the story that I just wrote about AOC, is my sense is that her star power is too great for that. I, I, I think, you know, she'll, she'll hang out in Congress for a while, but I really think, you know, her future is very bright right now. Obviously, you know, a lot can change on a dime in, in politics, but just being around her and also, I had never seen her actually speak in person. I'd obviously seen a lot of videos and stuff, but even at this parade, uh, in Queens, just watching her on stage, there is something so compelling and so energizing about her. Um, and and it's interesting. I don't think people necessarily realize how how small she is. Like she's a very small woman. And I think the very the most interesting thing to me. I mean, not the most interesting thing, but one thing that I noticed was, you know, interacting with her sort of one on one and when she's not speaking, she seems so much smaller, but it was like the second she took the stage and started speaking, it was like she, you know, grew in size and her voice was just this very compelling thing. You are really, she's just an incredibly engaging speaker. And I think she's just one of those naturally talented politicians. So I think her future is certainly bright. And I do think that, you know, um, next presidential cycle, uh, people will probably be pushing for her to do that. But who knows? Who knows? I mean, there are a lot of things she could do, right? Like, I think there are all all kinds of options. Um, Senate, governor. Yeah, mayor of New York. Like, different things, you know? Or yeah. who knows? I, I, I just think that she is an incredibly um, compelling presence. And I think there is a reason why there's AOC fever on the right and the left, right? Like, yeah, you know, the right conservatives wouldn't spend so much time attacking a 29-year-old freshman congresswoman if they weren't afraid of her. I, I just think that's a fact. And, like, to be afraid I, of somebody, I, they have to have a talent. Yes. You know? Yeah. Like, you're not afraid of somebody that is untalented or who, you know, you don't view as a threat. And, like, they've expended so much air um, trying to trash her, talking about her. Like, Fox and Friends almost talks about her as much as they talk about Trump now. Um, so, so I think there is something to be said about sort of this AOC fever on both both sides of the aisle. And I, I think it does signal that there there's something special about her as a politician, whether or not you believe in, you know, you may not agree with her policies, but I do think there's something, I, I think most people should agree on the fact that she has captivated so many, so many Americans in, in their focus. I think that you're completely right. I think that um, the, 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 there are 
a lot of different scenarios of how it plays out. And I think a lot of those depend on who wins in 2020. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, absolutely. You know, and if, if, if it's Bernie, then it's harder for her to run. But if it's someone more centrist like Kamala or, or if Trump wins again, God forbid, like then, then, you know, it's mm -hmm. a whole different ballgame. So, yeah, I do uh, think one, one thing that she told me that was sort of interesting, you know, I was talking about this pressure she's under, right? Like everybody is just waiting for her, not everybody, but you know, her critics are waiting her to, to, waiting for her to slip up, for her to fail. And she said something really interesting to me. She was like, God forbid everything ends tomorrow and I, I leave Congress tomorrow if something went totally awry. Um, and the interesting thing that she said was that she believes that there are people who will step up and kind of continue to push the ideas and the policies that she's been championing since she, since she took office. And I thought that to be a really interesting thing, but also reflective of sort of how she views herself. Like, I think she definitely views herself as a messenger of a movement that's greater than one person. And I thought that was a very refreshing thing. But also, you know, I do think it speaks to her ego and back to the point you made very early on that this wasn't somebody who has been trying for years to become a politician. It's interesting because I remember right before Trump became elect, was elected, elected is the strong use of the word, but became president um, or won the election and through an electoral college, if we have to get to that point. But um, <laughs> I remember Kellyanne Conway was saying, she was being interviewed on something and she was saying that she had, that Trump had, had at some point, like a week before it said, oh, you know, like um, somebody had said, what are you going to do if, if you don't win? And he's like, oh, you know, just go back to doing what I do. And Kellyanne Conway, and I, who knows if this is bullshit, but I remember her saying this and she had said to him, like, you're leading a movement. Like, this is not like, this mm -hmm. is not just about you. This is about a larger thing. And I think that Trump always led a movement for himself. And it feels like yeah. AOC is leading a movement because she believes in these policies, um, which is, I think, what makes her so refreshing. So right. 100%. 100% agree with that. Hopefully, uh, well, either way, she's got three, you, you said three million followers earlier. It's grown in the last hour. It's three and a half million now. <laughs> uh, and either way, she's going to be, uh, she's going to have all those people mm -hmm. uh, behind her for, for a long time. So Definitely. Abby, thank you so much for taking the time today. I know we had 75 last questions, but, uh, <laughs> no, uh, but like you it. did a thanks great job answering me. them. Um, really, thanks so much for coming on. Yep. Thanks so much, Nick. Really appreciate it. Thanks to my guest today, Abby Tracy, and by proxy, AOC. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. That's me. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a really nice, happy, fun five-star review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thank you, of course, to my sponsors, Groa and The New Yorker magazine. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. We'll see you next week for another exciting episode of Inside the Hive.